The short game is listener-supported on Patreon. If you'd like to support the show and join us on our Discord, head to theshortgame.net or patreon.com slash theshortgame. Welcome back to The Short Game. This is a show about short video games, games that respect your time. I'm Reagan Kelly, and I am joined by my very cool co-hosts. Laura Nash. And Shane Kelly, your twin brother. (laughs) Yes, it came up on the Discord recently that some of our new listeners weren't aware that we are... Uh, identical twins, uh, which I don't know Not why that would be important. Reagan, just to clarify, Shane and Rick. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> that's true. Yes, which I don't know why that would be important context for folks, but maybe if you're trying to visualize people clustered around their microphones, maybe it helps for you to realize that two of them look similar. But I, uh, I'm in. I'm just obsessed with the idea that someone out there was listening to this and imagining what the two of us looked like, and we looked very different from one another. I, I wonder what those people look like. I'm very curious. Yeah. Well, um, I'll go ahead and get into it. Uh, this week we are talking more about Kentucky Route Zero. So we did a previous episode a few weeks back covering specifically Kentucky Route Zero's Acts 1 and 2. And Kentucky Route Zero is really, really interesting in a lot of ways. And I wanted to make sure that we cover the remainder of Kentucky Route Zero. And so we're doing that over the course of two more episodes today and another one upcoming. Uh, So this week we are talking about the interludes, limits and demonstrations and the entertainment as well as Kentucky Route Zero Acts 3 and 4. And then we're leaving for a future episode, Kentucky Route Zero Act 5, and the additional interlude, the name of which I am forgetting. Was it... uh, here and there along the echo was the other one. Yes. I think so. Yeah. Yes. So with the phone, we're leaving that one for another day. Um, and, and is there another interlude that I'm forgetting? I don't know off the top of my head. Doesn't matter. We're leaving everything except those things I just mentioned for a future episode. Um, so obviously, because we are talking about the middle of the game, this is spoiler territory. So if you didn't listen to our previous episode, I'd probably go check that one out first. But we are also going to be talking a lot about themes of the game and things like that that uh, that are, have become more clear and more interesting since the first two acts. So um, if you have played Acts 3 and 4 of Kentucky Route Zero, welcome. We're going to be talking all about those. If you haven't played, um, I would say that our first episode, we have a clear spoiler break where you can listen up to that spoiler break and decide when you want to hop off and go play the game. Um, but in this case... There's not really going to be a spoiler break. You can consider pretty much all of this spoiler territory. Um, I will have chapters about which parts we're looking at. So if you have played, for example, Act 3 but not Act 4, it'll be clear where you might potentially want to hop off if you're worried about spoilers. Yeah, it would be really tough to talk about the themes of this without discussing specifics. Yeah. We would just be speaking nonsense. So we, <laughs> we appreciate it. We would just be it. giving semi-political diatribes. <laughs> yeah, just go back to listen to the first episode if you're curious what Kentucky Route Zero is about. We're not going to go into it too much here. Okay. So all that said, let's get into it. Um, playing the what we what we're talking about today is is like where this game got really really interesting for me, and I think the thing that really started to crystallize things for me was playing the interludes. So last time we talked about this game, it was before the release of Act Five, before the quote unquote TV edition update had come out, and so if you were playing Kentucky Route Zero at any point before Act Five came out, the interludes were separate from the main game download. They were something that you actually had to go out and download from the 
game developer's website, which meant I think that a lot of people weren't playing them. And I didn't. I wasn't playing the interludes. I they figured I would go and check them out later uh, after I had checked things out. But um, because they're now bundled into the main game, uh, and it's very obvious where it's intended for you to play them in sequence in between each act, uh, they've become much more, I think, of a, a core part of this game. And I'm really, really glad I played them. So the two that we're talking about today are Limits and Demonstrations, which comes between Act 1 and 2, and The Entertainment, which comes between Act 2 and Act 3. And before we get into what those are, let me just give a shout out to the beautiful interface to choose what you want to play next. If you quit the game and you restart, there's this kind of clock style uh, dial, but the inside is a bobby pin that you rotate to choose what you want to play. And it is just yeah. one of those little touches of surrealism that this game is so good at. It's like a cross between like someone, like the detritus on someone's desk and a spirit board. Absolutely. It's it's like a good domestic a Ouija. I love it. So let's talk first about limits and demonstrations. The very first interlude came between acts one and two. So um, limits and demonstrations takes the form of an art exhibition which all of these uh, all of these interludes kind of take a spin at trying a different mode of play uh, or a kind of a different way of of doing things than the main game. It, it, Limits and demonstration still sort of plays like a point and click, but rather than being a point and click where we are kind of progressing scene to scene, you're essentially just you play a group of friends exploring a museum exhibition retrospective of Lula Chamberlain's artwork. So if you remember from uh, last episode, Lula Chamberlain is the person who works at the Bureau of Reclaimed Spaces. And in her uh, non-workday uh, life, she is an installation artist. Let me tell you, I had been to the MoMA the day before I played this, did not know this was going to be, that's the Museum of Modern Art New York, um, and did not know this was going to be a museum exhibition. And I was like, oh no, I'm back there. <laughs> Let me tell you, Lula's work is a lot uh weirder and uh, more interactive than anything I saw at MoMA. No offense to one of the best museums in the world, but it's very strange to walk around a museum and see it so accurately. I don't want to say parodied in a video game, but they get the feel of a very um, neutral space of a museum that doesn't really want to say what the art is about. They, they get that exactly right. Yeah. I really liked this, although I will say that it, of the various different interludes that I've played so far, I feel like this one was the, in 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 some ways the most involved in the specifics of the game, and also in some ways the least uh, illustrative of themes. So, mm -hmm. like, yes, we get this like picture into like who is Lula Chamberlain and why, what is her art like? You know, she's referred to as an artist, but like, what does she do? Well, these very interesting installations, which depending on the order you go through them, seem to sort of escalate in terms of how improbable or or difficult to actually construct they become. Um, so there's a there's a couple of, uh, of, we don't need to talk about all of the art pieces here, but there's a couple that I think are pretty interesting. The, the one that I think is the most important in terms of the content of the game is an art piece that's called Overdubbed Namjoon Pak Installation in the Style of Edward Packer. Uh, years 1965, 1973, 1980. Uh, it, this is the, the sort of card that you get uh, in, a, in a very museum style. It tells you that it is made from magnetic tape, handheld tape, playback head, 
speaker system, voice of the artist, computer synthesized speech. So the characters are, are approaching a large kind of, I don't know, wall or board with speakers wired up to it that has a bunch of magnetic tape uh, like you'd have from a, a you know reel-to-reel tape recorder or, or you know, maybe like an unspooled cassette. And it's sort of held up in a kind of a weird uh, grid or, or sort of uh, bundle-looking arrangement in more or less random order. And you can sort of run a tape head across those that you're not actually doing this, but you're, you're, the characters are running a tape head across those strips of tape to playback recordings. And the recordings are of Lula and some other people in her life whose roles aren't really clear at this time, uh, exploring the mammoth cave or preparing to explore the Mammoth Cave, and also some events after they explored the Mammoth Cave. It kind of gives us a out-of-sequence picture of uh, Lula's involvement in the cave itself, and and uh, it's, it's, it's a way of weirdly sort of out-of-sequence exploring some events that get also referred back to in Acts, uh, I think, 3. Yeah, the, the return again and again we brought up in the last episode of, like, the importance of the Mammoth Cave by way of the Colossal Cave Adventure, classic adventure game, or I guess or, or original adventure game uh, keeps coming up in this, and it will continue to do so. I think something I really liked about this piece, this installation collection, is I think the pieces will make sense over time. <laughs> this, you know, this particular piece comes up word for word later. It's it's an Easter egg laying the groundwork. I don't know if the other ones will also echo back, um, but it seemed like the more you learn about Lula, the more that you're going to like this exhibition, the more you're going to, things will make sense or like you'll see why she made a piece based on her life. It definitely feels almost like a alternate reality game for Kentucky Route Zero <laughs> where you're, you know, it's like those things you did in science class where they made you do like a gallery of simple machines. Like it, it feels kind of like that where it's it's not exactly uh, moving the plot forward, but it's echoing it really closely. Yeah, it's um, I, I'm not actually sure how any of the other artworks relate to the specifics of the game. They might just sort of be, you know, larger portions of this envisioned artist's envisioned art career. And they're there to sort of give us a vibe or, or to, uh, to be art pieces that are part of the context of the game, which is totally valid and interesting. Um, I think probably the most interesting looking one uh, is visage. Visage is a kind of a face like a face like storm of spinning ribbons or something like that. Uh, hard to really, it's sort of a weird, a weird little mini tornado. Yeah. It's like that Photoshop effect where someone has a, like a mummy strand of ribbon wrapped around their head and the rest of their head is gone. I don't know if that's a common image, but I've seen it a lot in Photoshop effects. <laughs> yeah. I've seen that too. It's, it's definitely a cool looking piece. And I like that the, uh, you know, obviously this is a, a, installation artwork that would be impossible in the real world but in video games of course that's fine it's fine to to have things that are impossible in the real world the thing that i think is really interesting about it is that the the like artwork card the the sign uh says visage 1984 unknown media which is like when is the last time you've been in a in a uh, 
art exhibition and looked at a, a work and it says, we don't know what this thing is made of. <laughs> <laughs> that made me so happy. And of course, the first thing you can ask when you click on it is, what do you think it's made of? Yeah. Rather than just being a, a, an art exhibition that you can walk around, you're walking around it with a group of people and they all have their own comments about it. Um, I don't know if there's much to like call out specifically about their their thoughts, but yeah, they, they have different conversations about the art pieces and you can kind of decide where those conversations go. So, you know, they wonder about what the piece means or what it's made of. Um, there's the conversations are also totally uh, branching. So if you uh, it, you're not it's not like a menu of uh, everyone has their say about each art piece. You know what you say about the art piece, what you choose to say about the art piece guides these conversations and you get slightly different versions of them depending on what you choose. So it's a it's an interesting way to explore art in the context of a video game that I don't think I've ever seen before. I don't know if I've ever really seen uh, just like here's a museum space to explore. I mean, I guess there's things like Namco Museum, <laughs> um, but I don't know, not in, not in this kind of context. Pretty cool. Yeah, the only game I've seen that feels like this is the, um, there's a VR game that's the gallery of stolen or destroyed art. You basically walk around and see pieces that you can't see anymore because they've been stolen or destroyed. Oh, that's a really um, cool idea. I've never seen that. Yeah, it came out, of, I don't know. It's hard with Kentucky Route Zero to talk about time because the episodes <laughs> came out so far apart that mm -hmm. I have no idea if those were contemporary ideas or if one came years before the other. Um, but it's an interesting idea going through galleries. Did you guys know there is technically a first interlude, but you have to do a couple things in the first to see it? No. What are you talking about? Carrington, the director. Yes. Um, okay. I if you talk to him in the first act a couple times, you can unlock a first interlude, Death of the Hired Man. Very interesting. I want to talk about this for a second because this is important to me. The game has a totally missable character in the first act that I totally missed. And um, I'm pretty pretty solidly of the opinion that, that that is okay. The way this game is constructed, you know, each individual person's playthrough is going to be different. But the the uh, director Carrington is a character that depending on how much exploration you do of the map in the first game, you might completely miss him. He's referred to. So for example, when we talk about the entertainment, the entertainment is a play based on two plays written by Carrington. Um, but Carrington is a totally missable character and I completely missed him in my playthrough. Uh, and we, we just, there's a, that's a lot to miss because he's apparently uh you know, has a lot of potential dialogue that you can engage in. Yeah, I'm pretty sure I missed him too. Uh, um, how do you how do you track him down? So he shows up. Um, I got lost the first when I first played the game, um, and I ended up back at Equus Oils, um, and he was there uh, talking with the old man who owns it. Um, and he was like, "Yeah, I want to put on the show. I don't have a venue." Can you talk um, about what he looks I, like? Um, I don't remember what he looks like because. What I didn't realize is you have to keep re-engaging with him for him to keep showing up um, because I saw him in Acts 1 and 2 um, and then I did not see him in 3 um, and apparently because I didn't find him in 3, he will not be in the rest of my game unless I replay 3. Um, so he's not just a character that you have to opt in the first time. You have to continuously opt in and he's looking for a space to do his show. Um, and you can keep suggesting spots and wherever you suggest, he'll show up there in the next episode and then you can talk to him. Um, so apparently since I didn't 
go to the location where he is, like he'll be out of the rest of the game. But I was able to unlock an interlude with him where he talks about the poem his play is based on. That's um, it's just really interesting that we are going to have very different playthroughs, not just the normal like choose your own adventure interactive fiction style where we pick different dialogue choices, but I didn't realize how much you can quote, miss in this game. Yeah. So I mentioned his appearance just because I've, uh, you know, I, I have not seen him in my own game, but I looked him up and um, he appears to have antlers. I'm not sure if they're Yeah. Oh, yeah. He has antlers or... on his head. Yeah. 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 That, I was like, he had something on his head, but I didn't remember what it was. Yeah. He's got these antlers. Um, it, it's not on his head. It's, um, it's as if he's got a bunch of antlers strapped to his back. Um, like as if they're upside down, um, almost like a carapace, like a beetle, but it's antlers. So he doesn't necessarily have them on top of his head. He has them kind of yeah. surrounding his body. So I found a, uh, I found a thing on the Kentucky Route Zero website that is, I, I don't, I've never heard of these, but there's apparently a thing called a wrongle. I don't know what that means, but basically it's like a 3d model you can view in your web browser. And any, in any case, there is this, uh, there is this wrongle of uh, Carrington available on the Kentucky Route Zero website, which is him going into a phone booth, and he has taken the antlers off in order to fit into the phone booth. So I believe they are worn, not part of his body. Yeah, they, they're as if they're strapped to his back. And he's I do remember, uh, now that you mention it, he's also got this like orange cravat that I thought was very um, striking. Um, he looks kind of like a bust you'd see in like a, of a theater director, except for yeah. the antlers. Yeah. So super interesting that this character that honestly, I feel it feels like an important part of the game is completely optional, completely missable. And it makes me wonder about other things about this game that might be um, might be so, you know, so anyway, that if you're wondering why we didn't talk about him in act one and two, that's why. And we probably also won't be saying a whole lot about him further, because uh, like Laura said, he may not be in her act three or four. Right. And the the thing I, I didn't talk about Carrington because basically he was just a guy who wandered in and was like, where should I put on my play? Didn't seem important at the time. Um, and I assumed everyone else had seen it. So I think that this game is going to we, we talked about a couple other things like the people with the boat. Like there's lots of things that this game might just slip out. Yeah. And you never see it. The plane like who knows if that's going to come back around. Yeah. So let's talk about the other interlude. This would be the entertainment, which happens between acts uh, two and three. Uh, so just before the acts that we're going to be really getting into the details of today. Um, and for me, this is where the game, the whole thing, Kentucky Route Zero, really started to make sense to me on a level. Um, obviously, it's still a uh, magical realist. And so making sense, you know, <laughs> isn't exactly what it does best. But it does have some strong themes. Shane, when we were talking about the game in our last episode, um, you, I think, very correctly said that the game has kind of follows the theme of rural American poverty. Um, but it was around playing the entertainment that it started to open up to me that like, it's not just specifically about poverty or rural poverty or anything like that. The game, well, we'll, we'll talk about like what the entertainment is, but like, this is where really where it started cementing for me that this is a game about the effects on people of like pervasive capitalism, like capitalism in and how it touches every part of our lives and and the 
nominal good that it can do, the the really true harm that it sometimes does, um, the the ways that capitalism just absolutely touches everything. And the entertainment is so structurally one of I think the most interesting interludes. It's done in the form of a play. So rather than being a point and click adventure like I, so this is I wasn't expecting this because you know limits and demonstrations from a gameplay and structure perspective. You know, it, it's a it's a little bit different content, but it plays just like the main game, Kentucky Route Zero. Whereas the entertainment plays completely differently. You are both an observer of and a participant in a a stage play, a one act. So I thought, you know, as soon as I got into it, I was like, oh man, Laura's gonna love this. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So Laura, can you kind of explain the play and like how it works? So it is a play in the style of a John Patrick Shanley play for all three of you. Um, (laughs) It is basically people at a bar. um, And they say in the play that they've mashed together two different um, bar fly scenes into one play. Um, Yeah, both by Carrington, by the way. um, Both by Carrington. Um, And in the play, the – well, both by Doolittle. Oh, sorry. That's right. Doolittle and is Carrington the – wait. Carrington – I don't know if he's the director of this play or if Carrington he's just looking re- for. I thought Carrington was related to the entertainment, and maybe I'm maybe I'm just conflating. There one might second. be two theater directors running around. I'm gonna um, look it up. Here. But Doolittle wrote this because it's really interesting because he ends up he's the tour guide at Hard Times. Yeah, you know, I I was completely wrong about this. For some reason, I was thinking that Carrington Carrington didn't come up in my game, so maybe I just didn't like cross reference this properly in my head. But I was I was thinking that Carrington I think was Carrington the, directed. Yeah, maybe he did. It doesn't say on the page that I'm just googling through, and I don't recall specifically. Uh, I do know that Lula Chamberlain did the set designer was the set designer for the performance, um, which is interesting. Maybe Carrington directed in my game because I had Carrington. I'm I don't remember. Pretty sure that name came up, but I guess I can't say for certain. But um, yeah, go on. But but anyway, um, there are interesting connections back. The the writer shows up as the in the hard times distillery. Lula Chamberlain did the set, but the play is about this bartender. He's just come back from vacation. He's got all these desperate people who are drinking and not paying their bar tabs, and he keeps saying that this reckoning is going to come. Uh, there's a woman who won't pay her parents' bar tab anymore. There's a woman who thinks her husband, a hammer salesman, uh, might be cheating on her, and he kind of. She wants him to cheat on her so she can be free of him. And they keep talking about like this burden of debt, different kinds of debt, new debt and being invented. And he keeps saying like, there's going to have to be a reckoning. Like you guys are going to have to pay your bill at some point. And the big spoiler for this is at the end, he says, I've been selling, I've been only pouring hard times whiskey. Your debt is to them. They're going to come and collect. Um, and it ends with a scary light skeleton man showing up at the end. Yeah. So there is a big reckoning. The boys from hard times. So yeah. it, it, which is, you know, something that's a bit of a, uh, um, a foreshadowing or preview of what we're going to be seeing later on. But what I. Uh, what it I, is super surprising if you haven't played part three yet. Yeah, the the skeleton at the end is a really terrifying image and really good sound design crackling like a broken neon sign. What I think is really interesting about this is like, first of all, as a play, it's actually pretty functional. In fact, this has been produced as an actual stage play. The uh, you, know, you can buy this script as a script. It works as a play. Um, 
what they're but what that's what the game side of this does is it makes you a participant in the play because this is a mashing together of a play um called uh a reckoning uh that's that's the play that you're essentially observing but at the same time you are performing uh, a pantomime play called a barfly so the idea is that you know if you uh so the, the the pantomime is basically a pantomime of a of a drunkard sitting at a bar table trying to decide whether or not to leave and so if you look down at the table in front of you you have a sandwich with a brick in the middle and like a drink and like a, a newspaper that you can look at and if you're looking down at your table, you're seeing in your field of view your stage directions. And your stage directions are things like the barfly almost falls out of his chair, that sort of thing. The barfly thinks about leaving but doesn't. You know, you're, you're basically seeing all of these stage directions explaining like that you are an actor within this space and you're basically playing a, a drunk who's kind of observing the, the scene around him to some degree. You can play this whole thing without realizing you're the barfly. Yes, but if you look around, there's all sorts of interesting stuff to look around at. So if you're looking straight ahead, you're seeing the scene, right? And the the scene will unlike a lot of the dialogue in elsewhere in the game, you you don't have to click through the the dialogue. The scene continues to play out as long as you're looking at it. Now, as a concession to the fact that you don't want to miss large chunks of it, the the dialogue stops if you're not looking, which is nice. But uh, if you're not looking, that means you're either looking down at your at your table and you're seeing your own set your own scene that you're playing out, or you look back at the audience and you can see things like uh, reviews of the production that you're currently a part of, uh, or uh, like notes about the set, or notes about the, uh, or you, know, you could see the the audience behind you. It, it's really an effective way to like. It felt like theater to me in a way that very few games have achieved like this really felt like a theater production in a really interesting way and I found it very engaging uh just from the same way that I usually find myself pretty engaged by sitting in a theater and watching a play what do you guys think about it from that perspective at first I was a little frustrated because when I see a play I want it to just happen and I thought you had to keep clicking through the dialogue I didn't realize they had it on timers (laughs) which is a really small thing um and I think I wasn't sure it was that kind of uncertainty where I didn't know where what was going. Uh, but once I got into it and I realized it was this was less about the interaction and more about like it happening to you. Mm-hmm. Um, it felt more aligned to the theme of like things are happening and you have no control over it <laughs> than any of the other pieces in the game. This yeah. is the one piece in the game where like you can just sit and the whole game will happen around you and it's about the loss of control. So I, I came back around. The beginning, I was not feeling it at all. By the end, I was like, oh no, this makes complete sense for this game. Yeah. So I want to talk about the themes of the entertainment because this is where I really started feeling like I had a grasp on what Kentucky Route Zero is all about to a much larger degree. Um, and, you know, the, the like Laura kind of summarized, this is about a uh, a bar that the bar itself is kind of not doing so well uh, economically it closed down recently. The owner said that he was on vacation and recently uh, reopened. And after reopening, he's only pouring hard times whiskey. Hard times whiskey is apparently a damn fine whiskey, but it's literally all he sort he pours here now. 
And uh, the magical realist or surrealist element that's beginning to creep into this, it actually feels a lot more grounded than a lot of Kentucky Route Zero does. It feels like a you know a, a bar scene in a typical play. But where this starts getting odd is the the sort of evasiveness of the owner to talk about the uh, you know why he's only pouring hard times whiskey, where he went on his vacation, and so on. And it starts seeming kind of sinister. Um, all, all the while, while that's building, you know, you're, the character that I think that you're most involved with is uh, the the daughter of the two sort of uh, real bar flies who's in, uh, who initially she's not there, but then she kind of comes in and, and um, she's saying that she's, you know, trying to get out of town. Um, and she's been working in a pawn shop. But uh, recently it's converted to basically a payday lender. Um, and the the timeline of this is such that this is when payday lending was. I think this is, this is play is set sometime in in the the seventies or something. Um, and payday lending is new, and uh, it, it, the the uh, she has to explain what payday lending is to the other characters. And the the line she says in it that just like really stuck in my memory uh, it, because I think it's just it, it's so interesting is like. So she's explaining it. She says, so they invented a new kind of debt, right? And then she starts explaining what payday loans are. And she's trying to explain, um, you know, that she doesn't feel comfortable uh, working in this uh, because she's seen now that, like, even more so than the sort of exploitation that was happening at the pawn shop, this new endeavor is infinitely more exploitative. And she wants out. She doesn't want to be there supporting her parents going into debt uh, to drink themselves away any longer. And she wants to get out of her job where she feels like she's part of a system that's exploiting uh, people. And she wants to go, I think, off to California where, you know, good luck finding a way to support yourself without ex- being part of that same system there. But um, it really kind of shines a light on the way that this is this is a, you know, this is a natural extension of this is, you know, this is this is capitalism doing what it does. It's found a new way to exploit people by, uh, you know, by uh, use, well, new forms of usury. Yeah. 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 New forms of usury is a line for the play. And, and to me, it's not just capitalism. It's that there's so many burdens that are individual and systemic placed on people that it's so hard to get out of it because these are people who are alcoholics. They have financial debt. They have bad jobs. There are manager people who tell them that maybe eventually they'll get a promotion. Um, all of this stuff comes up in the main game too, but it's kind of distilled in this one act, um, which is what one acts are supposed to do, playwrights. Right. Um, and this idea that like everything, everything has to become a financial instrument. Every uh, every aspect of your life becomes a financial instrument. And the, the sort of almost parody level that this goes to is that, of course, um, after explaining about payday lending, uh, you know, and how those those payday loans get wrapped up into other loans and sold to larger financial uh, organizations, where people use you know, this is this is a game. Also, this part of the game I think came out during the financial crisis when everyone was thinking a lot about this idea of like um, uh, like instrumentalized debt, right? Um, and so at, at the the end of the the game, it's re- or the, of the 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 play, it's revealed that not. Only do, is that happening in the payday lending space, but like literally in this bar, these these drunks have built up debt to the house. The house has debt to you know the the um, the the bar itself has debt to the distillery, 
And uh, it's all part of a system where, in this case, the Hard Times Liquor Company is bundling the debt of these drunks into a financial instrument. Their debt has been sold. So now they no longer have a debt to the bar. They have a debt to the distillery and, and, and up and up it goes, right? So it's this idea that like, this is all one large system and, you know, it's, uh, it's exploited, exploitative all the way down, right? Everybody is being exploited by somebody else in a long chain that ends somewhere at the top, you know? And, and that really kind of seeing that specifically unraveled a lot for me when we got into the rest of the story, right? Because like, it's, it's all about these sort of chains of exploitation and chains of debt. Like, I don't want to get into the details too much of the, well, we're, we're going to be talking about specifics of stuff that happened in, in acts three and four, but like, like it really, it really, um, makes a difference that like we we begin act 3 with Conway getting into medical debt right he's you know he's his leg was was hurt at the end of act 2 and then here we are in act 3 and he's been to a doctor and immediately after he wakes up from the the surgery that he was went under at the end of act 2 here he wakes up and now his leg has been replaced by one of these glowing legs of the hard times liquor boys, right? The the shocking and They're image. not acknowledging this. All you see at that moment, and this is scene one of uh, of act four, three. Mm. Uh, mm-hmm. Scene one of act three is Conway sitting on the doctor's table and they're letting him know, you know, that he's, it's complete and, and they start to discuss payment and how his leg feels. Uh, but what you're seeing is his leg is, Looks like it's made out of like neon. It's like flashing, almost yeah. like a like a warning sign on a highway. Yeah, and, it has and this... if you played the end of the entertainment, it looks just like the horrifying skeleton that was one of the boys from Hard Times Liquor. So you know you. But again, this you don't before. know yet. Yeah. Well, no, you have. Like yeah. if you've if you've played um, the entertainment comes before Act Three. Right, but they don't specific. They just said there's going to be a reckoning, and then you turn around and there's the man. Well, how would you not know that that was like there's going to. They definitely say at the end of the thing that like that the hard times is coming. That hard yeah. times, hard times is coming to collect, right? And and then here is the skeleton. So like in the at the end of the entertainment, my thought is like, okay, this is death, right? Like this this horrifying glowing, uh, you know, bar sign skeleton, this flickering neon bar sign of a skeleton, is. Uh, is death coming to collect, right? Right, but it's a play, so you don't know it's like yeah. A real and I didn't thing. actually. Right, we don't. I didn't actually wind up playing the entertainment because I I kind of rolled back into this and I was like, oh well, I left off on act act uh, two. Uh, I guess I go to act three. So I missed mm-hmm. the entertainment. I think some people will do that too. Sure, sure. Good. And I don't think it's absolutely necessary to play the entertainment before act three, but I'm glad that I did because that bit of it, it essentially becomes mm-hmm. foreshadowing. Like, okay, I know that this horrifying flickering skeleton is related to Hard Times Liquor in some way. So, Shane, since you didn't play it beforehand, what was your Can take I, on that first scene? Well, I have to, I have to say, say one thing, which, um, you know, obviously, if you see a skeleton, it mostly is going to represent death. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Um, <laughs> thanks, I, Art History. <laughs> I did. I did. Uh, thanks, Art History. I, I saw a Reddit post a couple of days ago where uh, where someone asked uh, 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 asked the question, 
how did how did people know what skeletons looked like uh, before X-rays? And <laughs> I clicked through on it. I clicked through on it, and it said, "Edit." <laughs> Okay, okay, okay. I forgot about dead people. <laughs> Man, to be so blessed as to forget that death exists. <laughs> yes. I love it. Uh, I love it. Our Lord 2020. That is amazing. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Yes. Uh, so, sorry, back on track. Um, but, yeah, I've been a little quiet this episode because I missed – those interludes. I did the I did the interlude that follows Act Three, um, all along the Echo. Uh, but I jumped back in um, with Act Three here, which, like we're saying, started off uh, with uh, Conway um, and uh, and the events at uh, the doctor's office. Um, and in Act Three. Uh, so what? Shoot, I, I'm a little lost actually. Coming back to the to the start of Act Three, what happened thereafter, and in, in the in the doctor's office when we see his skeletal leg? So for me, the conversation was a lot about the doctor just trying to wrap up and asking questions about, do you understand your payment plan, which is to the electric company? Right. Um, but yeah. I'm curious if anyone picked. There's an option. When Conway's asked, how are you feeling? He can say, that's not my leg. And that is the choice I regret not choosing. I would love to know what he says. Yeah, what the answer I didn't to, choose that's that either now is. that you mention it. I, I kind of wish I had now too. Because there's a lot of dialogue in this that I would be interested in seeing what the alternate dialogue options are. But I think ultimately, like that scene is is mostly about this idea that like, okay, this has this this incident this accident that conway had at the end of act 2 that damaged his leg has put him on a path that he you know a, a path of debt uh, he's now in debt to the doctor the doctor is mm-hmm. in in debt or in some sort of servit- you know in in economic servitude towards the the drug neurohypnol uh, and the the and the power company that provides it to him, the electric company, which yeah. guess what is related to the mine, is also related to hard times liquor. It's all part of a larger system of uh you know of interrelated debt. Everyone is is in debt to something. Oh, and as we're fading into this, um, we actually start with uh, Conway talking to his wife. And there's this sequence where it really seems like no, I think it's she's, Lizette. She's, she's not his wife. She's uh, she's the she's his boss. She's his boss. Yeah. Okay, she well, runs the antique store. She they, has they, a husband, but they they're friendly. Uh, but yeah, so Conway Conway and Lizette are talking, and it's um, it's clear that she's sort of losing losing the the track of reality a little bit. She's she's having like forgetfulness and things like that. And then and then when we come out of it. <clears throat> The discussion um, with the doctor, it, the doctor is basically saying, "Like, no, you you couldn't possibly have been having a dream. Um, you were you were sedated, right?" And that that conversation that we're seeing in that scene is basically, I think, when Conway is being told that the uh, that his job at the antique store is going away because the antique store is closing down. Mm-hmm. Or, but I think he. I think he knows it, but it's the last. Maybe it's the last time that he's going to be able to have a conversation with Lizette, where she remembers him. Hmm, it's a. It very much reminded me of the opening of Firewatch. Um, it's that like 
dementia is one of the scariest things to me, period, end stop. And so this is a very melancholy and, you know, it's it's a two people at a table having coffee. But for me, it scared the bejesus out of me. Um, it it's very you you now realize why the antique shop is closing. It's not necessarily because it's not selling anymore. It's because Lizette is losing her mind. Yeah, which is very sad. We don't actually see a lot about Lizette's relationship with Conway, but it's clearly like one of the most important relationships of his life. I mean, she could be his wife. Who knows? I, I think it's referenced that she has a uh, has a husband, um, but uh, I might be misremembering. So maybe you know, <laughs> uh, don't. They're close. Yeah. They're very close. Um, mm-hmm. So they they wake up. Conway is back on his feet, or one of them anyway. And uh, now they're trying to continue their search for Five Dogwood Drive, uh, and uh, in order to do that, they first go back to the Museum of Dwellings. Um, where uh, you know Ezra, the kid that flew with them on the bird here, I think they were trying to return him home, and uh, they they can't get in. So Ezra continues on with them throughout the game. So Ezra is now part of our little RPG party, uh, and they are on their way down to I don't know where they're driving to at this point. I think they're trying to drive back to the the entrance to the zero, like to re-enter the zero. Yeah. They want to get back on the zero to try and find five dogwood drive. Um, but in order to do that, uh, the truck breaks down at that point, I think. Yeah. So this is, this is where we, this act really started to get interesting for me. Um, they're, they're starting to drive and obviously this truck is an old one. Uh, and finally the inevitable happens, uh, car trouble. Um, and so this scene, uh, was a fun one uh, for fans of uh, of theater as well. Laura, what famous uh, surrealist play uh, starts with the stage direction, A Country Road, A Tree Evening? I believe that is Waiting for Godot. Yes, yes it is. This is a Waiting for Godot scene. 100%. <laughs> yeah, so- um, I was really worried trouble... I wasn't gonna know it, Shane. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, he's going to do Ionesco. I haven't read Ionesco since 2003. <laughs> no, no, there's, there's not, there's no, there's no, uh, magical no realist slow here. pitch, uh, <laughs> slower than, uh, uh, than this one. Um, but yeah, uh, so in, in the Samuel Beckett play, um, it, it has two kind of wanderers sitting by a tree, um, waiting for someone to come and meet them. And that's what this scene kind of turns into is our our players are um, sitting there by the side of the road, um, and they have an amusing scene where you call for a uh, tow truck. Oh, I love that dialogue. That was so funny. Uh, it was some pretty funny dialogue, but I mean, it doesn't really serve to advance anything except kind of the ambiance and the and the humor, uh, and to instill a bit of hopelessness in I think the player. Uh, who thinks to themselves, oh, am, am I just going to have to sit here and wait for a tow truck? <laughs> and also, like, the, just how ineffectual customer service feels on either side. Yes, in, like, in the middle of the night. They can't do anything for you, and they feel <laughs> Empty bad. Empty road. Ugh. 
Um, so obviously we're waiting for the tow truck and then we cut to a, a scene where we are introduced to just two new characters who become pretty major characters throughout the rest of the game. Um, and you know, fan favorite characters, Junebug and Johnny. First and most importantly, they're riding in a motorcycle with a sidecar, which always will make me happy when I see a motorcycle with a sidecar. The best. Every time. Love it. And uh, Junebug and Johnny are riding through the night. They are discussing their music act. They are on their way to do a performance. They're very, very late. Uh, and interestingly, they are on their way to uh, the uh, the Lower Depths, which is the same name, I believe the same bar, from the entertainment. Um, but they're on their way to do a, a late night performance at uh, at the lower depths. Uh, we didn't mention it. We were talking about the entertainment, but, but a big, uh, theme of the, or not recurring, recurring element of the entertainment, uh, was that the people in the bar were waiting for the entertainment to arrive. They were waiting for a, a musician to come and play a show at the bar. And that never comes also very, uh, waiting for Godot, right? They, they, they spend the whole play waiting for something that never arrives. And, yep. uh, here come Junebug and Johnny, and presumably they are the people that were being waited for by the characters in the play, sort of continuing to blur the lines between this fictional fiction within fiction and then the fiction of the game. Spoilers for Waiting for Godot. Uh, at the end of that, Godot rolls up on a motorcycle with a sidecar. Yes. Oh, yeah. And it's that sweet. is <laughs> the most expensive part of the play and why it's not produced very often. Exactly. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so I know one ever does that show. Um, the So the, they're really interesting. They're, they're, they're both musicians. What do we so I don't want to uh, get too ahead of ourselves because we learn some interesting things about Junebug and Johnny a little later. But like, what do we learn about them in this first scene? Because at this point, we don't know a lot about their backstory or anything like that. We just sort of hear them talking about their music act, and we know that Johnny, I think, likes uh, likes pets, likes animals, is continually mm -hmm. continually asking, like, oh, you know, there's there's a. a we could go back and pick that dog up and take him with us, that kind of thing. Yeah, oh, I didn't get We have a, a should we or shouldn't we uh, stop scene with them, which, um, you know, I always like to kind of test the interactivity in things like this. Whenever Johnny asked, I think it was Johnny was asking Junebug to go back and stop and try and help the, the stranded travelers. Uh, and I just had uh, Junebug say no uh, over and over and over again. And eventually... <laughs> Uh, Johnny wears Junebug down, uh, and you do stop and go back. Um, Junebug turns out to be really good with machines. Hmm, wonder why that is. And if you if you're uh, really uh, eagle-eyed or eagle-eared at this point, you'll notice that Junebug and yeah. Johnny make yeah robot noises whenever they walk. Yes, they do. Yeah, I d I did notice that, and it took me a little while to put two and two together. Yeah, and uh, they also have gray skin. Yeah, depending on uh, uh, when you um. Uh, like depending on some dialogue choices later, uh, you do learn a little bit more about them. And I don't remember exactly when it was. So I'll just go ahead and mention that Johnny and Junebug are both robots or androids. They were built by the power company um, and they uh, they decided they didn't like the job that they had been constructed to do. And so they decided to reinvent themselves. I believe the job they were re they were constructed to do was uh, draining the Elkhorn mine, the uh, the mine that the miners died in, and in, in, that we discovered in, in Act Two and One. Um, but they decided that they weren't happy being what they were or doing what they were constructed to do. So they have reinvented and remade themselves into traveling musicians. Before we move on, I, I want to grab this piece of dialogue because it's one of my favorite. Um, so. 
Junebug is talking to Ezra the kid, and he says he wants to be specific. Um, and she says, you just got to make choices and own them. You think I was born this way? You think I was born this foxy? I came off the assembly line about a half foot shorter and all gray, no eyes. They were going to have us clearing out the old mine. Doesn't matter what you look like under all that rock and water. A bunch of gray shadows shoveling and hammering invisibly at the walls, draining the tunnels. And you could read this very much as a metaphor if you don't realize they're robots. Um, you know, I came out, you know, all gray and I had to make myself the way I want to. Um, and it's pretty... I wouldn't say it's easy to miss, but there's so much poetic language that you could just think of it as like, I had to make myself into this version of myself. Um, but it's it's more fun when you realize they're actually androids. And she literally did punk herself up to make mm-hmm. herself an individual rather than a, a machine. I, I also really like that it was her that did that transformation of herself because mm-hmm. in a lot of ways, she's kind of a... Uh, a repetition of a very common literary motif, the kind of female android Pygmalion kind of scenario mm, where, yeah. where um, you know, in, in the classic version of that trope, the, it's the kind of theme of the perfect woman, which she seems like a perfect woman in a lot of ways, you know, the, the ways that that kind of image is represented. Um, and in those in those tropes, the the theme of the perfect woman in, in, in particular is that she's the perfect woman who could only have been created by a man, you know, and uh, she is kind of a kind of a self-made uh, creature, an android, and has has created herself uh, in her own image, which is wonderful. I want to say something I thought was really interesting. Like, I, I, I if you go back and look at the the original Kickstarter video and other. Uh, material about Kentucky Route Zero. First of all, it looks completely different and is a, is a totally different thing. But there's a lot of elements of what uh, Kentucky Route Zero would become in that. And one of the things that, you know, Junebug is there as a character, but she was originally envisioned as uh, essentially like a like a disused Chuck E. Cheese robot, like a like a band robot. Um, like th- that she's, that she oh, was like the animatronic. Yeah. Mice? Yeah. Like, an, but not like as a mouse, but like a person, but like a, like, like, uh, like a robot country music singer, uh, who was sort of trapped in the, uh, in the, in the restaurant that she was built to play in or something like that. And that she, that, you know, you would help her escape or something like that. Um, I think it's really interesting where that character went because, like, you still have this element of, like, yes, she's a robot and she's reinvented herself, but we're kind of coming to her in media res, where she, you're, you know, you're not seeing that backstory. It's only, it's only sort of reference that she is this robot that has. But what's important about Junebug is what she has made herself into. Like, it's kind of beautiful when you think about this. Like, she's she's this nice metaphor of or or like. You know, idea about the idea that we are who we are. Everyone is a, a work in project, progress, a product of their own creation. That you know, she is very explicitly a character that she she decided to become, right? And I, I love that because it's it's I don't know it's it's so true about all of us, right? You know, we are all essentially uh, like a, a you know our own creation. And I don't know, I just I really really like Junebug in that way. I liked when she's. I, I like I, I like that about her. It's real nice to have a character about self-invention when everyone else is being brought down by burdens 
uh, by the man and their own weaknesses. Jibug's like, I have made myself. <laughs> it's kind of a light at the end of the tunnel. Yeah, and I, you know, more, more than anyone else in this, she is fr- she's not free of the of the invisible wicked hand of capitalism that's holding all of the other characters down in this in this piece. She's still part of that, but she's she's found her way to be herself anyway. And I think that's that's she's sort of like a little bright spot in this in a literal way too, she almost glows compared to a lot of the other characters. Mm-hmm. Might also be worth mentioning that the um, uh, the original Kickstarter version of her was really is clearly very visually inspired by Loretta Lynn, mm-hmm. oh, uh, yeah. and I think they went in a different direction for her style in the final version of the game, uh, both like stylistically and musically. But I like the idea of like if you've ever heard Loretta Lynn's album like Coal Miner's Daughter, there's like a real thing going there. Mm, totally. So I think you still have a little bit of that theme theming in there. Yeah. So we're, we're kind of plugging on through. I don't think we need to talk about every single beat, but I want to make sure that we're getting all of the important stuff in, as far as theme is concerned. You know, obviously, uh, like, you know, you, they stop and, and pick you up and, and you go to the, the, the bar sort of the deal was she's going to help you repair your, uh, your, um, uh, you know, your truck, as long as you will come and be the audience for her performance so that it's not empty when she, uh, performs at, uh, at the lower depths. And so you go and get one of the most visually arresting scenes in the game, which is so the good. performance at lower depths. Uh, they sing this song that uh, it's a it's a beautiful song, but you are constantly making choices about the lyrics as she performs it in a way that I thought was really interesting. And yeah, the song is called Too Late to Love You. Mm-hmm. And it's my favorite part of this act in an act that so far has been my favorite. Um, the... The, the you get to interact with the song as it's being played by choosing the first line uh, of every um uh, of every verse um but it's 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 lyrics like um as long as you were gone i knew that i was free free from certainty that our love could ever be it's too late to love you now it's too late i've made my vow but i mean the the cool thing about this is the so first off she does a quick change and she's suddenly in this kind of luminous blue dress, you know, I mean, and, and the, the bar itself starts to kind of slowly float away the ceiling and walls kind of fade out. And you're seeing the night sky with like stars, uh, and, and shooting stars whirling past. Um, and the music is super good. Like that, I, I'm glad that, you know, I, I like me some Loretta Lynn, but I'm glad they went in this direction for this character. Like the, this is my, this is my shit musically. Um, it's, uh, they have this, this brief conversation before the, the, uh, the, the show starts, uh, where she and Conway talk about like, um, what kind of music she's going to play. And I wish I had uh, screenshot that. Uh, but like, He's like, oh yeah, uh, whisper core, sure. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, this is good. This is gonna be my. This is gonna be. Funny. Yeah, I think I saw that. and I was like, Shane. <laughs> yeah. So and uh, yeah, really. So th- this this was really good. It's not a lot to say about it stylistically, except it's a song that's kind of about, uh, you know, a singer who is being left by their lover and has returned. I think and and has, uh, but the lover has made a commitment to someone else, I, I think is is what's going on in that song. So this chapter, this act is so interestingly paced to me. Mm-hmm. 
it feels like two or three acts in a way because yeah we have all this kind of like interstitial type like wrapping up the previous section the car breaks down and then you have this beautiful set piece um it just feels like that in 90% of the game would have been the penultimate action or the end of the act and mm-hmm. then there's so much more left yeah there is uh, in fact, looking at the clock on our episode, we may need to break Act 4 out into its own separate thing because we may need uh, – maybe we can just record that in a day or two here because I think there's still enough to talk about here where we can spend a little more time on this and it'll be a, a whole episode. Act 3 is really rich, Yeah, uh, Act 3 really, really is. So um, yeah. we you know, we've proceed. We uh, the, the bartender gives us directions back to the zero and uh, – Johnny and Junebug are going to tag along for a little while. So the whole team uh, heads down to Route Zero, uh, and we ultimately end up in a place called the Hall of the Mountain King, um, which is a great name. Uh, and uh, I'm pretty sure is a name of a place from Colossal Cave Adventure, actually. It is It is 100%. And there, this is the most reference-dense piece of the game. There are absolutely tons of game references here. And I really want to get into those. Okay. Because I, do. I tried to track down a few of these. Okay. It's the piece um, for men. Well, first, first set the scene. <laughs> yeah. What is in the Hall of the Mountain King? So as you start to walk into the Hall of the Mountain King, you're you're going down into a cave that is lit by firelight. There's a there's a pile of all sorts of detritus that you kind of are climbing up a ramp to get to. And th- it's things like, you know, you're you're passing a backpack and uh uh, uh I, I can't remember what all you're you're finding, but you're you're walking up this long winding path uh, past all of these kind of random forgotten items to make your way up to this firelit uh, pile of stuff in in the center of this cave. And oh, uh, we forgot one thing that I absolutely loved. Uh, can I jump back before the colo- this sure. this mammoth cave? Go yeah. for it. So you optionally have the option to go back to Equus Oils. Here. Oh, I didn't do that. Um, I don't think. Yeah. Um, so I did. I did go back to Equus Oils here, and because th- there was a scene that I really liked, uh, a really arresting image. I feel like our lesson is always go back to Equus Oils because that's how I met Carrington. Like maybe you should just always stop when it's available. Yeah. Honestly, whenever you get access to the map, I think it probably doesn't hurt to just sort of try and explore it. Um, that uh, if I had one sort of like. Um, fault to find with that. I, I find it a little bit frustrating to just sort of like randomly roam the map, hoping that like options to click on blink on. I kind of would have preferred uh, not having to just sort of like roam through every road of Kentucky every single time the map opened up. And I didn't do that and obviously missed content that I might've been interested in seeing uh, because of it. So, um, but you know, keep that in mind. If it gives you open access to the Kentucky map, uh, there's almost always something you can go and do on it other than go towards what your next goal is. So this, I just have to mention because it's my favorite uh, image of this, uh, even after the really cool imagery of of the the lower depths, you go back to Equus Oils and just sort of chat with some of the people that you've already met before uh, who are there. I think the theater director is there, mm-hmm. um, but I, like I said, I hadn't engaged with him much, so that conversation I had a hard time making sense of. Um, and then uh, as you leave, uh, the highway is blocked by a whole herd of horses. Oh. Yes. Okay. I don't remember the scene that you're referring to before that, but I remember the highway blocked by horses, which was like, yeah. And it's a very brief moment, but 
you know, all you see is uh, the headlights and the splash of light across the, the, the highway and a collection of like five or six horses who are just standing uh, super effing majestically <laughs> uh, casting long, long shadows. And it wow. is um, it's a it's a real moment. And I liked it a lot. So then you do get to the Hall of the Mountain King where you're going back down into uh, on your way back to the zero, uh, you're, you're, you find your way to this underground cavern. And I need to make sure I have something with names here. So you meet someone named uh, Donald and some of his assistants who are working on a, a project here in this underground cave. The, and, and so there's this, uh, there's this pyre that you kind of climb up to. So again, like I said, super dense with references. The Colossal Cave Adventure, uh, which is set in the Mammoth Caves of Kentucky, original adventure game, and it was uh, focused a lot of it on a, a central location of the actual Colossal Cave called the Hall of the Mountain King, which itself is a reference to, uh, I want to say, Wagner, probably? There's a, I think. Yeah. And uh, so you meet this guy uh, named Donald there. Um, who is working on something called Xanadu, which is a computer simulation of the cave system, which is significant because uh, the the guy that created the original Colossal Cave Adventure, the original adventure game, was doing so as a simulation originally of exploring the Colossal Cave. This is a guy named William Crowther, who was an amateur spelunker and visited the uh, the caves with his wife. Uh, and he uh, decided to simulate it in the computer. So the the like cause and effect of all of this, it gets particularly like uh, surreal and and difficult to sort of follow plot beats in this section of the game because, of course, like you know, it it, it, it gets increasingly weird here. But like we're we're ultimately going in here to to try. We're, our goal at the moment is still to try to find Lula um, mm-hmm. uh, because we need her to. I guess to, to find where Dogwood Drive was because of the sort of bureaucratic stuff that was happening at the end of, uh, of Act Two. Um, so we still need to find Lula in order to get uh, information on where Dogwood Drive is. So uh, we're trying yes, because to because use... there was two. There was two. There was a, a, a an address collision. There was two places with with the name Dogwood Drive, right. and we had to resolve that with some kind of piece of paperwork. Yes, uh, but we're climbing up here. We start meeting some of these assistants that work with. Um, work with Donald. Uh, there's, I, I've got Roberta, Amy and Andrew. Mm-hmm. Okay. So Andrew is, I think Andrew Plotkin. Oh, interesting. I didn't put that together. Yeah. So Andrew Plotkin is the guy who created uh spider and web and you guys were playing Hadian lands, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. What made you think he was Andrew Plotkin? Uh, because all of them have names from people famous to IF. Oh, okay. Interactive fiction. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. I didn't put that together at all. Uh, so there's Andrew Plotkin. You're absolutely um, right. Uh, the, there's uh, Amy, uh, who is also an Infocom author who wrote Plundered Hearts, which is probably famous for being the like only commercial interactive romance novel which I've never played. Why haven't I played that? That sounds great. I'm going to go play oh, it. Oh, dude, going to be so your and shit. And she's the one talking about that? romance and how she wants to get romance into the the game. Oh, interesting. Yes. Okay. Uh and then the the third one I think is Amy who's Amy Briggs, one of the founders of Infocom. Huh. Okay. 
Oh, sorry. I said Amy. Uh, hang on. So I talked about Amy. Roberta. Roberta. Yeah. So Roberta is Roberta Williams, one of the creators of uh, Sierra Online, which was and a creator of King's Quest. Oh, she's super famous. Yes. Okay. That makes sense, too. She's yeah, hugely yeah. important in the development of, uh, of uh, point-and-click adventure games. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, and and the game from Cardboard Computer uh, in 2011, uh, a house in California was based on, uh, on Mystery House, which was Roberta's uh, first adventure game. Hmm. Okay. I did not that put is, any of that these together. Were, these are some of these things. I, I, I started to pick up on some of these references once I saw uh, Andrew and I started to kind of get some ideas there and I started to I started to try and dig for some of these answers. I'm glad you did. So so you get uh, you get there, you get to the top and you're talking with with Donald about Xanadu, which is his, you know, and, and that is it on its face, extremely uh, IF referential. Yes, uh, because it's a it's a simulation of the colossal cave within a simulation of the colossal cave uh which references simulations of the colossal cave it's great and it's also and it's, it's running all the way down. It's in the in the context of the game it's running on a on an ancient bizarre mostly broken computer uh that is uh that operates because of black mold growing inside it which only grows in this cave so uh, initially the the machine is broken and we we try to we want to have to fix it in order to use the simulation Xanadu to locate Lula uh, because we're told that because Lula helped create Xanadu which apparently she did um uh, and you know referring back to the the um, the tape by the way that we heard in uh, the art exhibition in between acts one and two uh, that comes up here too uh, Lula helped create this during some time she spent in uh in the colossal cave uh, and so um we have to how we can't we can't talk about Xanadu without talking about Samuel Taylor Coldridge Coldridge for at least a second. also true okay yes it's the law um yeah so so Xanadu is the the name of a of a, a very very influential uh poem which has the 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 quote in Xanadu did Kublai Khan a stately pleasure dome decree where Alf the sacred river ran through caverns measureless to man down to a sunless sea and um this that poem the, is like the poem misquoted is, in this game several times they kind of do their own spin on it Yes, I, I like which the, I love. I like I liked the Kentucky version uh, that they gave of the Xanadu poem, uh, but Xanadu is you know it. So they're referencing Xanadu uh, the poem in a way here, but they're also referencing a real world uh, project called Xanadu. So this, this is the first time I've heard Xanadu referred to. That the important thing about the Xanadu poem is the cave and not the house, which I really <laughs> really enjoyed. Interesting, yeah. Xanadu about yeah. caves is a very interesting spin. So I mean, it does kind of touch back to the themes of um, uh, of, of of wealth and poverty, but 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 in the way that Xanadu usually is a is a reference to, like, I mean, in um, what's the famous film uh, featuring Citizen Kane? Thank you. Yeah, in Citizen Kane, like he. Uh, uh, Charles Foster Kane names his mansion Xanadu. There we're talking about the stately pleasure dome and not the caverns measureless to man. <laughs> yes, yes. So it's it, Xanadu is often used as like a, a reference for uh, opulence and uh, and luxury. So, you know, a synonym for like heaven on earth. And the poem um, is a lot of times kind of like this 
metaphor for artistic uh, expression that is uh, interrupted or obstructed. Yeah, the famous person from Porlock story. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, can you explain that, please? <laughs> yes. Yes. So, um, uh, so uh, Samuel T- Samuel Taylor Coleridge wrote uh, Xanadu in an opium stupor, right? And he was he was uh, you know blissed out on opium and composed the poem in his sleep or in a trance. And when he awoke, he had the poem fully in mind, and he immediately started to feverishly write it down. And then the famous story that he tells of this is that uh, that the poem is incomplete because. In the while he was in the process of writing down the poem that he composed in his dream, uh, he was interrupted by a visitor, a person from Porlock, uh, literally just a person who was coming to visit him from the town of Porlock. That's all we know about that person. Uh, and uh, the person from Porlock interrupted him, and when he was when he returned to writing, uh, the dream was lost, and he could not complete the poem. So that's his reason for the poem being left un- unfinished. Uh, that story of it is almost more famous than the poem itself because it's sort a, of a person from Porlock is now a uh, 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 or just a Porlock. Yes, is is something where you that shows up in everything from like Douglas Adams to like Conan Doyle as a uh, as a symbol of 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 assholes who interrupt you when you're making art. <laughs> yeah, it's like the writer's block made flesh. Yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, if if you if you everyone has a poor lock uh, in their lives, uh, you know, the stranger in a strange land uh, has a poor lock. There's lots of I've got a little everywhere. I've got a little podcast poor lock uh, screaming uh, in the other room right now. And uh, she's definitely uh, looking forward to me being done with uh, with my podcast so we can come uh play with her toys together. Oh, yeah. Oh. There's, uh, <laughs> there's, there, the life is full of Porlocks. Uh, but I think that specifically the Porlock in, uh, in this story is as you, so you, you manage to get the computer working, you know, and you're, you start by literally, uh, getting lamp, which is a, you know, a, a, another colossal cave adventure, uh, reference. And you start exploring this simulation and the simulation turns into a simulation of, the setting up of Xanadu, which continues to be interrupted by these skeletal figures, these strangers who come to scrape the mold off of the crystals in the computer uh, every so often and interrupt your simulation and reset it. Uh, so I think I think those guys are the poor locks of this. Story. Yes, and it gives you an interesting. It's very cool because it's like a. It's providing you the backstory on the computer from the computer itself. It's very very cool, uh, and that 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 scene that we're setting is also. Basically, the the content of that is the is the scenes that we got in fragmentary versions from uh, Lula's artwork. So it's Lula's artwork. It's you're currently doing the simulation of the cave you're in now. What if I were to tell you there's a third level of meta outside of the game? Provide it. Um, so I have uh, the book from the Victorian Albert exhibition that included Kentucky Route Zero, and they said that the the first thing that the cardboard computer folks built outside of the initial Kickstarter prototype was the Hall of the Mountain King mm, because they wanted really? to figure out what the scale of the game is going to be. So the first build was this huge system of tunnels where the researchers were all spread out and then you had to go from each person and it was like you were exploring the caves and you were um, you know, stumbling upon bits of poetry. You were doing this whole thing in real time and then they scrapped it all um, and went to what we have now, which is you 
or in a relatively small intimate space and then you go into the computer and live what they built as the first prototype of the game. I love that. That's really cool. So their simulation of a simulation of a simulation is also them simulating the first thing they built for Kentucky Route Zero before they scrapped it and brought it back in Act 3. That's really, really cool. I love that. Boosh. <laughs> Can I add another layer of meta? Yes, more layers. Okay. You're playing it on a computer. Shay, <laughs> <No. laughs> uh, do, yes. do you have some um, further meta to introduce before we move on? I, I do have a couple more layers of uh, of meta. Uh, Don Donald's name it comes from Don Woods, who's the first person to rework the Colossal Cave Adventure, giving it fantasy elements. Uh, and Which is really what made it famous, because that the Colossal Cave Adventure became famous by being distributed on mainframes from college to college. It was something that you couldn't at the time play on anything that you would own in your house. This had to be played on a massive, uh, massive computer, not unlike Xanadu here. It's a massive computer that would probably have been, existed at your university center, and you would dial into via Telnet. And it was essentially the first viral game because it spread from college to college, from university computer system to to computer yep. system, and so on. And he says there's extra cycles at some point. It's very college, computer, mm-hmm. academic. Yes. And apart from uh, apart from uh, that, uh, Donald is also based on uh, Ted Nelson and his project, Project Xanadu. Uh, oh, which well, there you go. <laughs> is an early pioneer uh, who was basically a IT pioneer uh, who coined the term hypertext. Uh, and hypermedia, and uh, that is a uh, a very apt project uh, to be referenced here because he started it at Project Project Xanadu in like 1960 uh, as a way to create like an interlinked way to create, uh, distribute, and sell hypermedia, and the Project Xanadu, he continues to work on it to this day, and in 2013, he released a, uh, a a, a fully functional version called Open Xanadu. So the the project to to oh, create know anything about this. Xanadu, the perfect hypertext, uh, the perfect hypertext environment, uh, continues as a labor of love to this day. That's that's super cool. So obviously, tons going on here, and you can spend a lot of time exploring Xanadu. Um, but the the key thing that we learn from this computer and from Xanadu itself is we learn about the strangers. You know, we're trying to find Lula and we learn about the strangers that have been coming into the Hall of the Mountain King and disrupting the computer. Um, and so the next thing that we kind of do is we go looking for the strangers. And this is where the mm-hmm. the, the, the story structure. I'm not ready to leave Xanadu okay, yet. Okay, fine. Go ahead, please. <laughs> okay. I think in this conversation, we also find out that Weaver was his assistant oh, yeah, at some yeah. point. Doing yes, important to bring up. Mm-hmm. So once again, we that Weaver is back. Um, and, uh, I think you get into certain, uh, I'm not smart enough to pick up on the mathematical references mostly, uh, in this part of the game, but there are some, I think, uh, including, uh, Conway's name. So Conway, uh, named after the guy who created Conway's game of life in the seventies, which is regarded at, who's a mathematician who created what's sometimes thought of as the first art game. Hmm. That's really interesting too. Um, well, so we we have to 
proceed onto the place where the strangers come from, right? So that both within the simulation of the game and, and in the sort of rumors that are told to us by the various assistants, uh, this, this uh, computer project, this project Xanadu has been beset by mysterious, terrifying strangers. Uh, and uh, they've been, you know, disrupting the computer system by scraping the mold off of it and so on. Um, and so we have to travel to the place where the strangers come from. And this is a really interesting moment because Conway and Shannon go talk to the strangers off screen. We don't see what happens with them. We have to wait outside in a kind of a graveyard where Ezra and Junebug and Johnny just sort of hang out waiting for um, for uh, Conway and Shannon to get back. And when they do, they found what they were looking for, but something has clearly changed or gone wrong. The tone is weird, right? And I really like the way that this was done because we do eventually see what happens with Conway and Shannon. But when they come back and then we, you know, we then go back and actually use the Xanadu computer to locate uh, where Lula is, you know, the, the, the tone has changed. Something, something not good happened down there in the place where the strangers come from um, and happened to uh, to Conway in particular. Um, and so it leaves us really wondering what what's going on. Um, Can you guys remind me, like, what point do we then flash back to this? Because we don't find, we don't see that scene of what happens in the place where the strangers come from, which we later learn is Hard Times Liquor or the distillery. Right. Um, they just make references to... But, but we, we, we do it wasn't see that worth scene. it. Yeah, exactly. Right. So you um, you can run around this graveyard and see all the you know read all the stones, which I very much enjoyed. But they, when Conway comes back from the church, he says it it wasn't worth what happened. Um, but they figured out how to fix the computer. You go back in. You play the working version of Xanadu, not the weird, um, horrible sounding broken one, uh, and you complete the game. Um, and you get the coordinates. Lula comes back. Um, Lula brings the coordinates. You feed it into Xanadu. You get the uh, way back to zero, and you actually know where you're going now. Mm-hmm. And then you stop by the bureau to pick up the outcome of that data. Um, and at the bureau, Lula answers you, and you have to wait for the ferry. So you're sitting there waiting for the ferry, and then you're asked point blank by Junebug what the hell happened. Like right. what, yes. what happened in that church. Yeah. And that's and then we you flash, flash forward back or, to or the back, hard times. Right. To the, so mm-hmm. um, I want to talk a little bit about the, cause we're getting close to the very end and, and you know, the, the last scene essentially is this uh, is uh, before we, you know, flash back to the, the present waiting for the ferry is uh, what happened to Conway and Shannon when they went to the place where the strangers come from, which as we learn is hard times liquor, the distillery, um, which also by the way is, uh, essentially one in the same with the power company, etc. Um, and, uh, theme wise, what I think we're dealing with here is like, the, the, well, okay, well, let's talk about the, let's talk about the scene first and then we'll, we'll get into that stuff. Um, Conway and Lula get to the distillery. They meet, the the people that work in the distillery are all these glowing skeletons, um, and they're kind of given a tour of the distillery. We uh, you know we talk to some various people in the distillery about their lives, and very much a, a lot of the the dialogue there is has to do with people essentially um, uh, working off debts. You know, everyone uh, who works there uh, it, it 
essentially working for the distillery is both, you know, slowly paying off a debt to the distillery in a sort of indentured servitude kind of way, but also incurring new debts as you go in a way that feels very like uh, Kafka-esque or Catch-22. Um, you know, the, the, the structure of life of the, the men or, or skeletons that work in this distillery is essentially like really brutal capitalist wage slavery, I guess, right? I think it's worth mentioning that like the appearance of the distillery is it doesn't look like a distillery. What it looks like is the kind of a, a cross between uh, the lair of a James Bond villain where you have mindless drones constantly walking around in the background and the uh, lobby of Enron. <laughs> oh, yeah. I guess I could see that too. Um, it, it does have a. It's a very. It's a very um, corporate space. There's there's all sorts of dialogue that can happen here, and there's some really interesting stuff where you get like flashbacks of uh, of Conway's life that I thought were really useful. You get to drive a little car. Yeah, you get to drive a little car around those little like <laughs> uh, like corporate like little buggies that you use to drive around inside of warehouses, that kind of thing. Yeah, um, I, I took a tour of the Boeing plant, and I was having flashbacks. To yeah, that. yeah, it's very much like a like a corporate tour, right? But as part of that corporate tour. Uh, they're essentially given a sample of the liquor, poured some really good stuff, and that was very expensive liquor. And now uh, Conway is in debt to the uh, uh, to the distillery himself. This is a little bit Persephone, isn't it? And not only that, he was a recovering alcoholic, and now he's gone back into the like the debt of alcoholism. Right. <laughs> like it's it's a double whammy. It's so sad. So, yeah, yeah. Odd way. I, I should mention there's like a there's an interesting interaction there where uh, that kind of glitched out my computer and I had to uh, actually restart the game. Uh, but the second time it worked and it was cool, which is that when you're offered the drink, uh, your cursor uh, moves on its own to accept the drink. Oh, uh, and yeah. you you can kind of drag the cursor to fight it a little bit, but not really. Um, I thought that was an interesting interaction. I, I have, there are a lot of places in this game where, um, I think there's some bugs around their, their use of like creative cursor interactions that I keep running into where the Mac OS cursor kind of fights you mm. a little yeah. bit. I don't know if anybody might, else might be a Mac thing. Yeah. And, and I wonder how they manage that on the switch version, for example, where obviously there's no mouse cursor, but, um, like I, I definitely ran into those a little bit, but like it, it works for the most part. Yeah. Uh, so if you're if you're playing on a Mac, I mean, hopefully if you're listening to this, you've already played it. But uh, if you are playing on a Mac, uh, turn off the feature uh, in Mac OS where you can like jiggle the mouse and the mouse cursor cursor gets really huge. Oh, mm-hmm. uh, and that'll help you a little Interesting. bit. Okay. So I want to talk about the themes of this, like wrapping up this act. Um, like you know, we end this act with Conway, who was. Almost, you know, he was on his last delivery for his job that, like, his job for the uh, for the um, uh, for the antique store feels like the traditional conception of what is a job, right? It is a job that he works. He has a good relationship with his boss. He performs uh, labor and gets money in return, and that is his that is his job. It's his role within the economy. And uh, it's the job. It's the role of the job within his life. Um, and then we end this. Uh, we end this uh, same thing. He's he's ready to retire, and we end this game with him now involved in a job working for the distillery that has a completely different character. One that feels much more like the sort of 
it, it, you know, all this stuff is is ultra heightened, but it is the it is the way that jobs have and 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 working has become worse in that he is uh he works this job not not just because he can do it and and wishes to do it and is paid to do it, but because he can't not do it for economic reasons that are part of a system beyond his control. Uh, and part of that is that he's being exploited um, in, in you know, his, his, uh, his, uh, his alcoholism is being exploited. He's being economically exploited. And, and it all began because he uh, got into medical debt. His, his medical debt is being exploited. It's all very, uh, very much a part of you know, every, every part of this is talking about the ways that this larger system is built to specifically find and exploit people's weaknesses and not even just weaknesses. You don't have to be weak to be injured. Uh, you know, you, you, uh, you don't have to be weak uh, to need a job to live. This is a game about like how all of the different ways that, that like capitalism is touching the lives of these characters. I don't have to be weak to love delicious. Whiskey. Exactly. <laughs> we don't mm-hmm. do we? Um, uh, and, and, and poor Conway comes out of this. Conway has a pretty good outlook, but poor Conway comes out of this chapter, you know, with a, with a bizarre glowing leg and a potentially lifetime commitment to working that he didn't expect to have on the day he was planning to retire. It's about how surprising that debt can be. I think that it's not just that it's not like people are like, oh, no, I was taken advantage of. It's that you needed surgery, you wake up from the surgery and now you have debt. And it's not that you didn't think about the debt beforehand. It just wasn't a reality. You take yeah. a sip of whiskey and you're indebted for life. It's it's there's a lot of unforeseen consequences that are much bigger than you could have ever anticipated. And it's sneaky. It's pernicious. I think that's what's really interesting. It's not preachy either. And, and every like, it's, exactly, it's not preachy. It's just it's it's uh, it does a really good job of sort of showing like th- this is this is how things can be sometimes. You know, this is uh, Conway's access to medical care. Uh, was contingent upon his being useful to a, to capital, right? Being useful to bosses, essentially. In most games and books, this would be the role of the boogeyman. <laughs> like this would be the role of the villain. Like, yeah, I, I loved, I loved that they, you know, that we get into the distillery and these horrifying monsters that were these skeleton men that were, you know, creeping around in caves turn out to be just more victims of a system, right? The author of the play is your tour guide. <laughs> really? I'd... The person who wrote oh, the entertainment about death my God. is Doolittle, the person oh, who I didn't make now that works for Hard Times all. Liquor. Oh, man. Thank you, um, Laura. And it's it's just, again, it's that like, it's meta and it's also that kind of insidiousness that even the person writing about poverty and debt is himself working for hard times now. Yeah, because they can't not. Because it's, you know, when, yeah. when you're in a system like this, like you and I and everyone we know are part of of this. And, you know, whether we're, whether we're being affected by it, like Conway is right now or not, you know, your access to healthcare is contingent upon your, 
uh, ability to provide value for a system. Uh, you know, it, it, when, when, we, when we say things like healthcare is a human right, what we mean is that healthcare, and I, I'm focusing on healthcare because it's in the national consciousness, but there's other aspects to this too, where, but like something that feels like it ought to simply be a right, or maybe even if it doesn't feel like it ought to be a right, just think hard about why is it that that you know you or I, uh, if we lost our job, if we were unable to work, or maybe if we just worked a different sort of job, or whatever it is, your your access to healthcare, for example, is contingent upon your continually providing value to people who have power over you simply because that they own, I'm going full communist here, but like they own the means of production, right? And because they own the means of production, you serve them in order to live. And, And in order to live in the most basic way of not dying when you get sick. I think it's important to note that Kentucky Route Zero deals with themes that are inherently political, but it doesn't take a side. Right. No one is saying we need change in this specific way. They are just telling their stories or living their stories and saying it sucks to be the subject of this story. So if you're allergic to politics and games and you somehow got this far into Kentucky Route Zero, it's, it's not... <laughs> Good luck with the rest of it. <laughs> well, it's not taking... No, true. It, it's not saying this is the change that needs to happen it is describing the current state very well and leaving you to take your own point of view about what exactly is the problem. It's kind of just presenting this hopeless situation in as much detail and with as much you know surrealism and extra magical realism aspects as possible. It is an artistic reflection of life in rural America is what a lot of the themes of the game are going for. And in this case, like, you know, more than 40% of, you know, working age Americans have some kind of trouble with medical debt uh, in their lifetime. So it is just an attribute aspect of life that's being, that's being reflected here. And, you know, we see, we see it along with the systems that play around it. And you feel so much for these characters over time that you will feel things what you want to do with it is your own. It doesn't tell you how to feel, but it will make you feel. Absolutely. I, I'm going to steal a line from uh, Austin Walker over at Waypoint where he was talking about this game, contrasting it with other games that have political messages. And, and he said something along the lines of that that um, uh, this is a game that's really concerned with not so much with what do we do, but what does it do to us? And I, I love that because you're, you're right, Laura, this is not a game that's like, says saying anything about like here's how we resolve this situation it's just casting a weird light that clarifies in a way that just looking at the world around you might not um and it's not about like look at the the terrible things that could happen to this character this is a this game in 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 every moment tries to find ways to tell you it's not just conway that's suffering in here everyone is you are you know, this is a this is a uh, a vast system, all of it connected, and it's connected to every aspect of the lives of every character in this game, and 
this this act of this game in particular, Act Three, combined with the entertainment, absolutely blew my mind. Like I liked Acts One and Two, but Act Three, it just like completely threw me for a loop. And um, this decade has been one in which I have gone through a lot of changes in terms of like. Uh, you know, politics and so on. And I'm also not going to try to spend a lot of time, uh, you know, telling you all about my personal political journey or anything like that. But I will say that games have been a surprisingly big part of that. And I think this is the this is the game that has had the most resonant political message for me that I've played since Night in the Woods. And this probably even more so. This came before Night in the Woods. So obviously I think that influenced, this influenced that. Oh my god! I just thought of like how different our night of the woods conversation would have been if we played this first. Oh my god! It's crazy, right? Can you believe it? Like, I, I almost want to go replay that now because this game actually did, despite the fact that it's very surreal, it actually clarified some things for me about the way that I see this sort of uh, systemic, uh, you know, the the way that like pervasive totally uh, pervasive uh, rent-seeking capitalism reaching its fingers into every single aspect of our lives, the way that actually works on people. That's what this game is about. And I thought it was actually like really a a little bit (laughs) mind-expanding. Like, I I can't, I I, got to say like, great stuff here. I I don't know. I don't know how much else I have to say about it. Good game is good, guys. Good game is good, guys. And I think we should probably go ahead and wrap it up. I don't know. I think it's too long. (laughs) Okay, maybe so. (laughs) Because this game is uh, (laughs) a bit of a, a bit of an exception for us in that like, you know, if we took any individual Probably three episodes of the short game, we have never had one game that we devoted three episodes to. I guess you're right, but we gotta, we gotta, so next time we're gonna do another episode. Life is strange. Yeah, that's true. Life is strange. Um, and that was also episodic. So that's our that's our out here is that let's say that each one of these is a short game, each act. And this particular act was great. So I'm glad we we took the time to really focus on it and do a full episode just on act three. I'm fine with it. We had a lot to say and who boy. Um, so next time we're going to come back with more of Kentucky Route Zero, probably talking about acts four and five. But I guess we'll see how that structure ends up actually working out. Um, Looking forward to talking about that. Anybody have any closing thoughts before we uh, wrap it up? We didn't ever say the game's fun. The game is fun. (laughs) Also true and beautiful and and, and really a joy. Like we've just talked about some of the ways that this game is about um, dismal, exploitative, you know, et cetera. But it it is it is beautiful. Like any book club, you, you take that as an inherent. We liked the game. Let's talk yep. about the nitty gritty. Yes, so absolutely. Just want to say, if you somehow yeah, got definitely. to the end without playing, like this game is not a straight bummer. Yes, absolutely not a bummer. I, I'm, you know, I, I've had so much fun. I've had fun playing it, and I looked back on it. I thought about this game in retrospect after playing it more than almost anything that we've ever played. Mm-hmm. And I also will say, like we talk a lot about games fitting into your life. Um, this game is flexible in in terms of how you engage with it. All of the chapters are open to you to start at any time. Mm-hmm. Uh, things like the interludes are um, cool, but truly optional. Um, and like, if you if you're like me, and you you know you, you got to like ninety nine percent of the way through Act Four, and you're like, you know what, I got to catch up for Book Club. I'm gonna skip straight or not, Act Two, and I'm gonna start straight with Act Three. Like that kind of that it, it allows you to do that. Mm-hmm. And like like a good book, you can kind of skim the pages a little bit and see what you like from it. Um, so. 
you know, if you if you want to just dip a toe into this game, I think you really can do that and see how it, how it feels for you. Minor criticism, this has the same issue as Netflix TV shows do and that you don't know until you start an episode or you're in the middle of it how long that episode's going to be. Mm. You know, like when you're watching yeah. Netflix and an episode might be 35 minutes or it might be an hour 20 and you just have no <laughs> earthly idea. You do get this on, these are longer than Acts 1 and 2 and I think it, fits and again it's a game your length varies depending on how you explore but do keep that in mind it is just fine to stop mid chapter mid scene in an act and come back later so it's not like you must sit in one sitting or you're not getting the full experience so you can definitely make it's funny to be like oh no this two-hour game was didn't fit in my schedule but you know you can you can bail when you need to and the game will still be um, totally able to um, keep up Absolutely. With you. So we've now talked for an hour and a half about the third act of a five-act game. I think we've got to wrap it up here. So thank you, yes. listeners, for sticking with us. Uh, I'm Reagan Kelly. You can find me on the internet at Reagan K. You can find our show on the internet at underscore short game or www.theshortgame.net where you'll find our contact form to let us know what you're playing, as well as you can find us on Patreon, patreon.com slash the short game. All of our listeners get access to our Discord, or excuse me, all of our patrons, supporters at any level get access to our Discord, which is where we talk about the game. And if you want to talk to me about uh, you know, pervasive global capitalism, uh, uh, you know, uh, finding its way into every aspect of your life, I would love to have that conversation with you on our <laughs> Discord. Uh, you can also uh, find us on all the podcast platforms, and we would love it if you'd leave us a review. Something like uh, on the iTunes or Apple Podcast Store would be awesome if you uh, if you have the time and. Um, uh, Laura, where can people find you? You can find me on Twitter at Laura J. Nash. And Shane, where can people find you? Also on Twitter at 8BitShane. And thank you for listening to The Short Game.